0: thanks for tuning into to the southern way podcast on the sportsman's empire podcast network i'm your host mark haslam and on this show we cover all things hunting culture across the south tips tactics and skills to better your pursuit and of course we'll do things the southern way Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Southern Way Podcast. I'm your host Mark Haslam, and I am pleased and excited to have on the line George Blitch of the Southern Blitch Podcast. Thanks, buddy, for being yeah. on. This is I've been I've been looking forward to this. Hey, how have you been, George? I've been fantastic, man. Uh, dude, I'm really excited
1: to to join you today and and chat hunting and conservation, all sorts of wonderful
0: things. That's right. That's right. Conservation never ends, does it? It's no, just, it just never does. It's, it's always unfortunately and it's always I guess unfortunately and fortunately at the same time. So, um well, can you tell the give the audience a little peek about who you are and background and what you do? Sure thing. So, uh
1: first and foremost, I'm a fifth generation Texan. Um come from a long line of hardworking folks. Uh kind of born and raised around the Houston area. Uh went to School up in Boston for college and then came back to Texas as quick as I could. Um, Did a little bit of traveling around in that time. Worked with a guy named Harvey Arden. Uh, He was a National Geographic staff writer. And we formed a publishing company and kind of traveled around, worked with indigenous elders. Um, And, you know, kind of when I came back, I worked in a bunch of different types of jobs. But I kind of have a background in the arts, a lot of uh, photography, videography, uh, editing, writing, writing. Um, and that kind of all, you know, through the course of my life uh, and, and music as well, has all kind of put me in in touch with kind of working out at the ranch, and then kind of eventually doing video and uh, you know some different things uh, involved uh, in that outdoor space. Uh, and then I, uh, I guess, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Uh, came up with the idea to run a podcast, and with the name like Blitch, you got to do something with it, right? So I have the <laughs> Son right. of a Blitch podcast. where are talking to a lot of different people in the outdoor space, Um and then I still kind of touch into kind of my background with, you know, touring musicians, um, some people who are writers and you know, authors and such. I was an English major, so I wrote a lot and read a lot. Uh, so I'm, I still kind of have my fingers in in a few different elements in, in that kind of world uh, as well. I uh, still do a little bit of uh, publication uh, as far as like working with Um, Native American elders and such, Uh, got another book I'm working on uh, about Bob Lemons, a former slave who ended up being the, uh, basically the most original mustanger uh, as he was dubbed, but he would basically uh, go out and he and his mustang would go and live with a bunch of uh, wild mustangs. And the area of Texas, we had the wild uh, mustang desert between the Nueces River and Rio Grande, And he would go in this his late 1800s and he would live with these wild horses and eventually challenge the main stallion and overcome the whole herd. And they would follow him as the, like the leader, just crazy story. But our family has a, uh, from five generations ago, has a lot of, uh, connectivity with Bob lemons and his family. So there's a, a lot of stories about kind of early Texas history here, um, you know, and, and fighting against some of the Comanches and, you know, in that, in the 1800s and, Wonderful stories about Bob and just kind of what he it did for, uh, you know, kind of a movement of a lot of the black cowboys at the time, which was a real rich, you know, there's, I think it was like 20 something percent of cowboys were black cowboys, but it's mm-hmm. something that's obviously uh, overlooked a lot, but I think there's a lot more interest these days coming back into that. And so, you know, it's a, that kind of writing bug has I kind of put it aside for a while but that's kind of coming back so I'm working on that book slowly and surely so yeah I kind of have my fingers in a few different pots man but you know really I'm, I'm very enthused about uh, wildlife conservation uh, awareness you know promoting um, good stewardship of the land and uh, trying to kind of bring about uh, as many leaders in that space uh, for my podcast including yourself you know we got that episode that we did that'll be dropping soon and uh, just love talking to, you know, people who really have a passion for uh, kind of preserving that way of life and the hunting lifestyle for future generations. So that that kind of, in a nutshell, is a little bit of who I am and what I'm into these days.
0: Well, I don't, I don't know where to start. <laughs> We've got, we got a lot of ground to cover here, George. Let's get right into it. Um, I, there's two things that stick out to me. Fifth, fifth generation Texan. I want to talk about that. Talk about your family land, definitely dive into that. I know that you work as a wildlife manager on the property, mm-hmm. but a side note, how did you end up in Boston? Your fifth generation Texan? I know, I know that you're an English major. Was that the reason? The
1: Well, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of related. I went to, uh, I was a, big into soccer and I was playing all around the country. I was at the Olympic development program level. And so I went to a bunch of, uh, kind of you know meeting some different coaches and, and colleges and kind of going on these recruitment trips. And so I went to Northeastern and uh, ended up rooming up with this guy named Mike Bowers, who was also a musician. So he took me out one night. We've got to see some of the clubs in, in Boston. He played like some blues and rock stuff. And I was kind of into that uh, element of music. And so that was kind of a neat scene to be a part of. And then I noticed that at Northeastern University there in Boston, they had a program where, you could do a lot of types of internships um, at different you know state offices or even the white house and at that time um, in my you know naive thinking i wanted to get into politics because i thought i could you know do some <laughs> great change and yeah. had all these wonderful ideas of a brilliant 18 year old who knows everything and so i got in there and took one political science course and decided that uh, I would change my major to English with a minor in secondary education to become the fifth generation teacher in my family. And so I thought that was something I could do to kind of, you know, have my impact on the world and help to inspire folks to become the best versions of themselves. And so that was kind of this, uh, you know, big dream of mine then. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I guess college soccer was kind of that, one of the tenants of, of that interest in, in that area. But Boston was, it's like a quarter million, probably more, uh, college students within a you know, like a 10 mile, uh, you know, radius. And it's just a really fun town. Uh, a lot of sports culture there, a lot of music, uh, a lot of great food, and just a lot of cool jumping off points, you know, kind of being in Texas, you can drive for a whole day and still be in the same state over there. You can, you know, visit a bunch of different States and a bunch of different types of environments and, you know, cultures. And so, uh, it was something that I, I I think I needed to get out of Texas and kind of explore and find myself and, uh, you know, in a different area so that I could, you know, have that growth and, and seeing different cultures and ways of life. And it was certainly impactful. But, yeah, it was not, you know, wasn't that political science realm that I originally thought, <laughs> but I, I found a path there and yeah. a good one. I still studied music, played in a bunch of bands and things, and was really involved in the art scene out there, too, and and just met some wonderful people that are lifelong friends. So it was It's not anything I regret, but it was definitely, uh, you know, it was a a different path at that time for me, but it was one that I needed to take.
0: Nice. Yeah. That's cool, man. Cause yes, sometimes some people need to get out, uh, maybe other, not, 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 not necessarily their comfort zone, but just get out of where they are, their environment, experience other stuff, whether it's a short, short period, a long period and just, you know, see some different things that can help you know evolve them as you know as as they matures and into a into an adult. I know what you mean, George. I I had to, I took one political science class in college, and um yeah, I just I didn't I, not that I was looking to go that route, but either I don't think I hadn't taken. I, th- I think I chose mm-hmm. what's for me at least after watching Veep. Which I was a big fan of, and then House of Cards. It's like, and then as I grow as an adult and just see this stuff play out, it's amazing how real those shows really are. You know one's a comedy and one's a drama, but like, you know, politics, it's something, it's something wild. Well, let's talk about your Texas culture. Not Texas culture, but your family. Uh, fifth generation. I know you've got some land. Let's dive into that for a little bit. Cause I know there's some there's some rich history with you and your family and what y'all do when you're laying. Can you tell us kind of like <clears throat> the the general region where it is yeah. and type of terrain, game animals, non-game, that all that kind of and we'll kind of dive in slowly. Sure, sure. So uh
1: the ranch that I I had two ranches in my family that I would go to when I was a kid. Um, the one in Southwest Texas uh, was around a thousand acres. Uh, that is in a in, in Demet County. It's a, basically my my family helped settle in that area and was one of the first few settlers. Uh, my great great grandmother was the first teacher um, in wow. in that uh, region. Uh, it wasn't even a town at the time. It later became one and and came to the county seat there. But uh, my family had uh started ranching in that that part of the world and i you know kind of mentioned bob lemons earlier uh our family worked with him and uh when he passed he ended up giving us a a a portion of his land to give us around that a thousand mark i think we had about 640 and i think we got you know roughly half of of uh what he left us of his 640 and you know that area it's obviously like a lot of land all around the country. You know, uh, there's a lot of artifacts of the past, uh, tons of arrowheads and tools Uh, in that area. You can see them a lot. It's a lot of real rich red dirt. And, uh, you know, it's kind of this desert-ish area. Uh, A lot of, if it doesn't bite you or scratch you or try to kill you, you're somewhere else, man. I mean, there's like mesquites, cactus everywhere, some impenetrable areas of the property, unless you're to bulldoze it. Uh, You just can't get through physically unless, you know, you're a little critter or something. And I grew up there and that was kind of, you know, it was when I was probably about six years old, I reached down on a walk and found this absolute perfect arrowhead. Uh, I got it behind me over here in this case. It's a white one um, that it, I remember just every time I would hold it as a kid, I'd think about who must have touched this last, when was the last time that this was used? What was it used for? Was it shot at an animal? Did it take the animal down? And, you know, wow, how did this person create this? They're using, you know, stones to create this. And then what did they do to, you know, make the arrow to be able to use this or using an atlatl or whatever it was at that point in time. And I just became fascinated with the Native American culture and the idea that my family was here on this land that had been used for tens of thousands of years. You know, I mean, we've, we've found, you know, old, old points uh, that are, you know, 12,000 years old over there, um, that just so I, there was a rich connectivity of the of the history and then the idea of what you can do and how you can live harmoniously with the land and use its resources but not overuse it and being able to keep enough for future generations to enjoy. And so this idea of conservation, though I didn't have the term in mind at the time, um, and even that kind of like management, wildlife management it wasn't there in the forefront of my mind as those terms, but I was connecting to that ideology without even knowing. And eventually as I grew older, uh, you know, and started hunting, started out with, you know, rabbits, small game. There were some squirrels around there, but not a ton. Um, not a lot of big, tall trees, a lot of brush trees and stuff. Occasionally by some creek beds, you'd find some taller trees, maybe see a squirrel here and there, but that was kind of rare. But I would, I would, you know, start and cut my teeth on hunting rabbits, uh, javelina as, uh, the years progressed and the wild hogs and increased into that vicinity, uh, became more and more, uh, of a hog hunter because <laughs> we're trying to do whatever we could to kind of keep those numbers down. But that was something that growing up, I don't remember them when I was real young, but, uh, obviously when I kind of got into my teen years and beyond, I'd see a lot more of them, um, and they're everywhere now. Uh, but white deer out there, it's one of the, it's kind of in the golden triangle of Texas, which is one of the, you know, when, when they say that it's one of the top few counties for, uh, big bucks out there. Uh, a lot of, you know, Boone and Crockett's from that area. I think it's one of the, the main counties, uh, that, that produces them each year. Um, and just flourishing wildlife, tons of birds, uh, got into kind of hunting dove. Uh, there was a lot of quail there growing up, uh, bob whites and blues, Um, and then, you know, it's over the years, we'd see a lot of different types of animals come in. Um, you know, we've seen badgers, which when I was first there, Hmm. I'd never seen a single one. Fox, those are new, uh, for that area is is, comparatively speaking, you know, in the last like 10 years kind of seen a a lot of those. Uh, it was a good turkey hunting area growing up. Um, in recent years, it's a lot more thinned out. And that's something that, you know, I've become, as I've been studying more about turkeys, uh realizing that we need to definitely let that place rest and not and i think we'd maybe have one or two turkeys that you know would be taken collectively uh over a year but it wasn't something that people were hunting a lot but yeah seeing fewer and fewer so being mindful of that but um trying to think of what else there man there's you know we get with some ducks coming over and stuff too so there's a few ponds we have there so we'll kind of jump around in the middle of the day in between hunts and see if we can scare some ducks up and Mm -hmm. uh not a big duck hunter, but I've, I've become more, went out teal hunting the first time this last year. But uh, yeah, so it's always been something that my family grew up when they would take an animal it would usually be to feed themselves and maybe people who were working on the ranch with us, uh, friends and family. And I learned very early on about making sure I'm using every single part of the animal that I possibly can. um, not leaving any meat on the bone, um, taking some of the bone make stock, doing different things to where utilizing uh the animals to the best that you you possibly can, uh, and really kind of knowing I guess being taught ethics at a young age as far as you know making sure you're making the right shot. And, you know, as I become more of a precision rifle hunter in my future years or er, in, in in more recent years, uh, that's even more important now, and making sure you're making the most ethical shot possible uh anytime and teaching people to do that. And so I grew up, my uncle kind of taught me the way around the ranch and taught me, you know, what what we need to do. And then I uh, have another family ranch that I would go to as a kid, but it was more of a cattle ranch that my granddad, my father bought in 1975. Uh, my grandfather was a, a Air Force uh, veteran, and uh, he was a colonel there. And so in his later years, he ended up buying that ranch and running some Santa Gratritis, uh cattle over there from King Ranch and uh, had a phenomenal time going out there, you know, shooting and, you know, fishing a lot, a lot of ponds there, but, uh, that place was closer. And so I, I had a great connectivity to it, but I didn't run around as I did free when I was in South Texas. Um, and then about 12 years ago, um, after my grandfather had passed, uh, my dad ended up with five eighths of the property, uh, a little over a few hundred acres. And, um, that we kind of decided that we would, you know, split it up with the family and that he would get his. And he immediately signed it over to me and said, here, you here's the reins and you run this. And so I had had some experience, uh, being a, you know, wildlife manager of the property in Southwest Texas, along with the, you know, collectively a few other people then to running it fully on my own. Um, and that became something that was just a whirlwind of information. You know, that's when I, you know, first described a QDMA and uh you know well the idea and the practice as well as uh you know the organization at the time which is now National Deer Association as as you know you know but that was something that I really was doing some deep diving in that next level of uh management and habitat and wildlife management altogether and that that's been just a tremendous journey so you know I can jump into that as well or we can go different avenues but that's those two ranches you know i kind of cut my teeth on learning about things in in south texas and then moving into central texas in the last kind of 13 years of really being the the person who's running that focusing on that has been uh you know two different properties two different topography um central texas has some creek beds a lot of big oak trees uh still a lot of brush and, and mesquite and things there too that in areas can be impenetrable but uh you know, a little bit of different dynamic and animals there too, but it's been just a a wonderful, uh, thing to kind of being able to borrow some from the other and and learn to do the best I can to, you know, get back to that land.
0: I bet. Yeah, man. It, it, um, hearing you talk about, you know, taking over the rain, so to speak, or, you know, I, um, I've been, uh, in the process of doing that in my family farm, um, just my dad, you know, he's now that he's, you know, I mean, he's I think 72, but he's been trying to, you know, kind of turn more stuff over. And, and that's, that's a, that's a pretty interesting dynamic, um, you know, that, especially you've got family land and, you know, it's it's been done, whatever the practices are, it's been done a certain way. And then there's a new generation that's kind of taken over you know, or another person that's kind of taking the reins. And um, it, it's a pretty, not that I'm to dive into that, but it, it can be kind of interesting dynamic because typically when that happens, we're talking about, like I said, a whole, a, a new generation. And a new generation typically means that not that, that, not that that current, that generation, the stepping up is is smarter, but I mean, you know, it, it it's it's it's. I mean, everyone knows. As as time goes on, we we know more about things. We know more about wildlife. We know more about the habitat, the soil, blah blah blah. So the knowledge and the technology of what you and I can look up and in 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 do right now in 2024 is different than what the previous person that was doing it decades ago. So. It's sure. a, it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, you and I might want to change some things. Maybe we want to – maybe I want to start rotating our burn – our prescribed fire rotation a little bit differently because this area we don't want as much grass with more – and it's just it's – that's something that I've not, you know, different – now that I – it's just my own thought. But it, it's, it's interesting that, you know, our generation, you know – like like research and knowledge of wildlife has just increased the past 20 years i mean you know up in you know the 80s and 90s there was a lot of stuff but just there's a ton of stuff we didn't know so now it's like what you and i are consuming in the younger generation it's it's interesting because when you're taking it over for a family it's not like you're saying the last person didn't do any didn't do certain things it's just a it can be a very Uh, you know, interesting dynamic, you know, because you don't like for me, I don't want to go in and just completely overhaul things, I do, but I don't want to, you know, I want to kind of ease the transition and smooth because you know, people are kind of set some ways, and but it's certainly, um, but it's something, man, that everyone, if you own land, you got to think about because if you don't cover some of these things, it can be tough. For the, for, the, for the land to survive that next generation. Of course, as you've been a fifth generation, you'll have a strong history in it. And of course, you're doing something right. What, can you talk a little bit about the deer population of these two properties? Um, I'm very fascinated about South Texas. I have been to Texas a couple of times hunting, um, but only for access deer in the hill country. Um, I forget which town we were, we were, we were right outside of. It was um, It was a place called Joshua Creek right in the hill country, um, they are primarily a, a bird hunting lodge, but they have access to it. and it's low fence and they're wild and it's wild, as wild population. They're almost kind of like a, not a pest, but they're, they're not the main focus of their hunting lodge. And they have whitetails there, but the whitetails are significant. Whitetails are maybe like in the max, like one twenties as far as size. So right. the access are definitely the more of the, of the big game animal. Incredibly fun, but that's all I know. That's all I've been around is the hill country. What's fascinating to me is South Texas. Um, I've got the book somewhere, Muy Grande. You probably yep. have read it. I mean, my, my dad had that for years. He he went to a couple – he went to a ranch down there called Fina. I don't know if it's there anymore. It took my brother, but um, that area has just been so fascinating to me about – <clears throat> the deer management and what they grow in the herds and the antlers and the, and the health quality of that type of environment that you just d- described. So yeah. can you can talk a little bit about the, the deer population and then, you know, are y'all doing things? I mean, what do y'all do for habitat for deer down there? Cause I mean, I know what I do for my habitat. There's no way it's probably, I mean, I know y'all aren't doing control burns probably, No, it's it's usually
1: so dry out there that the idea of even lighting a match is uh, everyone looks around to make sure that there's, you know, fire extinguisher nearby. It can be it can be pretty tough, man, because that desert kind of climate um, there, you know, some years you get a lot of rain, sometimes you don't. And so one thing we're always doing is putting out water. Uh, We have different, you know whether it's 50, 150, you know, even larger, uh, you know, water basins out there. And so we're kind of doing water year round, kind of, you know, what's good for the bird and herd, you know, helping it all around. Uh, and, and because there's some areas that are sometimes a year rather that, you know, there is no water in any of our tanks for uh, months at a time. And so that's something that we're, we're very cognizant of, but as far as, you know, the management down there, I'd probably say about 30 years ago, um, maybe twenty five. Uh, we really took a strong approach where you know we reached out to our local wild game uh, biologist and had them come out and for for our county. and we did a helicopter flyover and did a survey, and they were like, "Listen, awesome. you guys have not been doing near enough dough. Uh, <laughs> to, you, know, it, it, you have been you've been focusing on bucks. and You know, I get it. You know, there's, there's something, you know, obviously alluring about seeing this huge rack and, you know, everyone wants to get the big buck on the wall. I mean, you know, it's, it's a great thing to see when you get to shoot a, you know, example of a mature animal of whatever species it is. And being able to see that kind of, you know, culmination of any, you know, hard work of of that or being able to say, okay, we're going to let the little ones uh, grow to be big ones, you know, but it became, it, the idea of like quality deer management was really instituted in us about that 25 year to 30 year mark. And that's where we started to say, okay, now we got to work on, uh, you know, more doe harvest. And I think, you know, there's times we'd go out there and collectively between three people, we'd see a hundred deer. And that's just on three different spots where, you know, a lot of hunting.
0: you're on the stand hunting.
1: Yeah. I'm in, I'm in a stand, right. I'm so I'm in a deer stand and you have maybe two to three maybe four lanes they can see maybe 200 yards each or whatever it may be and you know you come back oh i saw 40 deer i saw this (laughs) and it would be amazing how many deer that were were there um but you know it's during the rut times you'd see the big guys finally show up most of the times they'd kind of stay in the clear but we were starting to i think we took about four years off where there was no bucks harvested and we only took doe per the wildlife biologists, you know, instruction and number and trying to get uh, the right ratio and balance for that area. And so we did that. And kind of every year we do another flyover, we'd start to send in a tra- game trail cameras. And this is, you know, the beginning of game trails when you had like a one megabyte, you know, SD card, you know, and and it, was it was like, like it was yeah, like a flat was, screen you, TV. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The deer are, like checking themselves out in the mirror of it. It's so huge. And yeah, Um, so we would, we would send in all that data and kind of, you know, print out the pictures and personally hand them to the, you know, come a long way. But I remember just kind of being in that first stage of things. And then I think it was about 10 years later, we, it was just like one day I remember going there and seeing like what our work had actually produced. And then we're seeing a lot more, big healthy deer the numbers were better there wasn't as many but the ones that were there were healthier and you know does uh fawns bucks alike and it it was kind of that aha moment that oh okay this this was all for something because as a young hunter I didn't really understand it all but then walking through those processes and being able to see what we could do uh to help out that the herd population and, and the ratio uh was was a big thing and then we would do stuff like we would plant oats um, and whatever we could, but a lot of times, man, you'd plant them and you'd just be praying for rain, you know, and sometimes it would come, sometimes it wouldn't. So that's kind of a hit and miss deal. Uh, we would start to in, have protein. Uh, that was something when, when I first went out there, uh, you just take a five gallon bucket with some corn and sprinkle some out. And you would just hope that you might see something coming through. A lot of the hunting was, you know, advantageous if a deer came across and, you know, just mm-hmm. get on it quick you know, make a sound and get it to stop. And, uh, now it's much more kind of, you know, throwing corn or having a protein feeder. I still personally love, uh, you know, when I can see a deer that's moving through natural terrain or going to something that we've planted or, or natural Forbes there, if it's a good year, um, oh then as opposed to like just sitting under over a feeder um you know that it it attracts them out there too and because a lot of those areas if you didn't have a feeder out there you might not see anything because it is just so thick and so you know it's um it's a way for us to be able to get uh you know our numbers and being able to see more deer and kind of evaluate we got game trail cameras everywhere but yeah so like you know as far as the 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 growing stuff out there. There's a lot of uh, really great grasses and forbs that that are are out there. A lot of brush that they're eating on. Uh, we've done a lot of time so sort of bulldozing and just kind of letting things grow back. Um, some you know instead of these non-indigenous, uh, you know, species of different kinds of weeds and brush out there, of which there's always uh, you know new stuff coming up. So we've done a lot of things like that, um, and really trying to help out our areas that are, you know, like our tanks, making sure we're building stuff and planning things maybe along the edge to kind of keep down erosion and trying to kind of hold the water there so we can kind of hold more animals. Um, It's definitely the dynamic has shifted uh, a lot because we are 30 minutes or about 30 miles from the Mexican border. And, um, you know, we have a ton of traffic coming through the property um, from illegal migration. There's just people that are through there all the time, uh, trash in the areas, um, moving the game trail cameras around. So and where they're coming through. Really? So like, Oh, big time, big time. Uh, it's, uh, there's, you know, we were hunting this one point and my buddy texted me and he's like, Hey man, I see you. I was like, how can you see me? And he's like, well, you just crossed the road in front of me. I was like, I'm in the deer blind, man. And he's like, Oh, uh, we have someone on the property. And so, calling up Border Patrol and letting them know and then they're like, hey we're you know inundated at the time. They're like, we'll have someone there in about five hours. And they came through and he's like, sorry, man, we're so busy. you know we don't have a lot of people in this area right now. We're all down an Eagle Pass and you know we're having 10,000 people coming through a day and I was like, wow, that's a lot to process. And I was asking him and he said, yeah, sometimes, you know, groups through our property, they'd, they'd see him, you know, flying on helicopters and kind of looking down thermals and things too. And he said, there's sometimes 10, sometimes a hundred people coming across at a time. Mm. And it changes the dynamics for our wildlife there. Um, and now it doesn't like eradicate the deer, right? It's not like they're running away anywhere because throughout, there's just a lot more traffic, but they're it does change things in our ability to count when people are going through and taking the SD cards and throwing them in a pond or, you know, rearranging the cameras, um, going in. And a lot of like recently we had people lowering the corn, uh, barrels that we have like these 50 gallon drums and eating corn out of there because they've gotten lost. And that's wow. literally what they were trying to do to survive. Uh, it's just, it's such a weird dynamic, man. I was 10 years old running around with the 22 had a thousand acres to play with and, come home before it's dark. And now it's like, you know, I got a 10 year old. I'm like, you're not going 10 yards from me on this property. Yeah. Uh, and most of the people, you know, uh, they're trying to get over and have a better life. And I I understand it. If I was in a lot of their situations, I'd want to get out of it. Um, but we have a lot of people who are, um, you know, there's a lot of human smuggling, drug smuggling that comes through that area too. So it's just a different dynamic, which I'm glad that I also have the ranch in central Texas that has become probably more of a focus. And uh, if you'd like, I can kind of dive into what we're doing there management wise.
0: Oh yeah, um, absolutely.
1: Cause that, that one's, uh, I think a lot more hands-on. Um, I'm there a lot more uh, have people that that stay on the property and that are kind of keep it up on the day-to-day operations. But uh, you know, when I kind of, my wife and I, when we took over the reins there, uh, first thing we did is have a wild game biologist come out uh, worked with our NRCS, you know, a division of the USDA, um, and so we had you know agents come out and kind of look at the property. We did an evaluation for the different types of plants and and forbs, you know, that that were maybe tier one or tier two or tier three sources for uh, white-tailed deer, uh, turkey, uh, as well as ducks and 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 dove. But white-tailed and turkey were kind of our two main species that we wanted to work on, you know, wildlife habitat. And so we got introduced to a bunch of different programs, aside from creating a, a wildlife management plan, um, where we joined the EQIP program, uh, Environmental Quality Improvement Program uh, with the NRCS. And one of the things we did is we cleared about 25 acres of just a bunch of non-indigenous you know, indigenous land there, uh, or, or growth, um, both trees and just shrubs and, and grasses and weeds and we replanted native grasses and forbs there, um, for better bedding cover, uh, just kind of some transitional ways. I mean, I, I have a company called map my ranch. Uh, so I've been mapping people's hunting places for about 20 years and, and, you know, hunting leases and public land, we do everything, even fishing and stuff too, coastal maps. But, um, I really have been a map dork all my life. And mm-hmm. I was always constantly looking at these things and Uh, When I started to get maps made for my property, which is what kind of started off the business, looking at different the topography and figuring out what lanes and channels that, you know, animals may run through. And, of course, with the inclusion of things like Onyx and things too, you know, have a different level of stuff with like these satellite images. But we'd have these old aerial images we got done on the ranches and, you know, kind of figuring out where things might be, uh, you know, good setups for Um, you know, maybe where there was a food plot or a field that we we would, you know, bulldoze and, and, you know, root plow and burn, and then, you know, plant these native forbs and grasses for the, you know, covering areas and things too bedding areas. And so it kind of took a whole nother level of wildlife management when that happened. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, when you and I talked about this, we kind of had a, a very interesting interaction with a. At the time, it, it, I wasn't sure what I was looking at, but it was an all black deer, um, which, you know, learned that it was, uh, you know, soon thereafter, it was a melanistic white tailed deer. So it appears dark in coloration, kind of the opposite of albino. It has too much melanin in its system. And we have a lot of melanistic deer in that area. And that area in central Texas, there's about seven or eight counties that have more melanistic deer than the rest of the world combined. Um, that area is just very, very... Uh, I think it's like 20% of the deer abnormally dark in the, uh, region. Um, but that was something that, you know, it kind of, I guess that kind of kicked off another level of like, Oh, we have something really special and unique here. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I don't know, I guess it kind of ticked into another level of, um, wanting to manage, uh, that to the nth degree. And so I started taking courses. I started, you know, just pouring into every single book that I could, uh, you know, joining QDMA and, you know, looking at all the resources I possibly could that online and and, and in print and in person um, and conferences, anything I could go to, you know, further my knowledge. And we've been, you know, I, I think in that 13 years of our type of management principles, We've seen a healthier population every year. We're sending in the game trail data to the wild game biologists. They're telling us, based on our area, how many does, how many bucks we need to take, and we've been really on top of that uh, and planting a lot of the native forbs. And so there's times where you know it's like you'll go out there and you know they'll, they'll spread corn and stuff too. You know you're you're not even seeing any of the deer eat the corn because they're eating all the awesome stuff that's been growing naturally in that area and some of which we planted, some that was already there. And uh it we just have an amazing amount of uh, just really high quality white tailed deer there that like you were talking about too, as far as the size, Central Texas is much smaller of a deer than in South Texas. You know, like a South Texas really big, mature buck might be two hundred pounds, whereas in you're looking at maybe a max of like one sixty in Central Texas. And so we do a lot of our meat hunting down south just because you get bigger deer and stuff there too. Yeah. but a lot of the management hunting comes into play. And, um, you know, I think probably, you know, you, you have very similar, um, maybe an evolution of your hunting too, where now I'm getting as excited, if not more for seeing a person take their first deer or take their first step out in the woods and really kind of, uh watching them with kind of new eyes you know uh you know it's kind of like it you you kind of revisit where you were when you started and who took you out who mentored you and what did they teach you and how can I teach that next generation um or even people who are you know of our same generation or age or even older who haven't had hunting in their their yeah. life um and so that's something that uh you know this year we had um you know it was a cousin in law who took his very first buck ever and it was just A dandy of one, and we had uh just this last weekend uh, basically hunting season ends at the end of February there because we have an extended uh permit, land managed lands deer permit, so it's usually the end of September, the end of February, um, is our, yeah. our season there. And so, one of the kids just came out and he just took his first deer, um, and so I kind of you know think about that and how that's just something that. It's it's neat to see that evolution um, of other people kind of getting into that, and that was one of our, our very proud things this year, being able to say that, hey, man, two kids got their first deer ever. How how fun, you know, how how neat yeah. to be a part of that and all the work that goes into it year-round, keeping that place up and, you know, doing everything you can to, you know, best – uh, enhance that habitat and wildlife and you know those kind of rewards are they're priceless so yeah it's definitely a different animal than south texas and you know it's a lot a lot of different types of management there too um and a lot of different you know different species out there as well um that that are kind of in one area there's a lot more turkey in central texas so mm-hmm. you know what we do there for them is a little different in south texas where we're not seeing as many but yeah there's that, that, that place is where I spend a lot more of my management time these days, even though I'm still very involved with the management program in South Texas.
0: Yeah, that's, um, you know, hearing you talk about the, the deer population in, in South Texas, that was something it took me a little bit to kind of truly grasp. And I think a lot of people when they have land is, uh, I should say I'm referring to carrying capacity, you know, you. you you want to see deer. And we went through phases early on in our property where, you know, we wanted to see a lot of deer like in December, you know, go out in the field and see a lot of deer and you, it's great. But then you t- truly understand that concept and people can hear it and they can read about it, but to really dive in and understand that, you know, yeah, you could have, you know, let's just call it in in even a hundred deer in your property utilizing your land, a hundred deer kind of floating on, floating off. But maybe if you whittle that down to like 70, then those 70 deer or those 60 deer are going to be a lot healthier. They're going to be bigger. The does are going to have healthier fawns. It's just, it's, you know, people, you know, talk about carrying capacity, but like what really kind of truly understanding that, you know, you got to go in, maybe uh, lay off the bucks for a little bit, or you just pound does. And it doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, I mean, at least when I talk about it, I don't, you know, I mean, it's at a certain point we're gonna have to lay off our dose for a year or two. I mean, we've been going ultra aggressive, but at a certain point, you know, we're gonna taper that off and that's why you, you know, keep keep the records and everything. Um, going back to this melanistic buck or bucks, I should say. I know yeah. I know you've read an article about it. Let's talk about that, but what what's the general I know there's not much known about it, truly research factual based data, but what is the general idea? What's the hy- hypothesis about why it's your area Are these deer and more, is it, is it more of an open area and they're in the sunlight more? And so they've evolved to be, you know, darker, you know, I mean, what is the, is there, is there like a real idea about why it's concentrated to your area?
1: So there was a professor at Texas Tech who studied melanism. He's since retired. Um, whenever I, I ended up taking a buck in 2016 on Veterans Day, um, which happened to be the first deer that I took at that property, uh, which I dubbed him Black Beauty and have a story uh, that I wrote about that, um, and which was in the QDMA uh, Quality Whitetails and that was kind of one of my first forays into, you know, outdoor writing. And since then I've written a lot of more articles, but that one kind of talked about that particular buck. And when that came out, that professor reached out to me and asked me some questions and he was very curious. And I've obviously had tons of questions for him. And his first question to me was, does that area have a lot of Creek beds? And I said, yeah, a ton, actually our whole Northern property is all creeks. we got creeks running throughout the property. And he's like, okay, that explains it. And I was like, what does that explain? And he goes, well, you think about a deer who is very, very dark. I mean, these deer are almost black. And you know, I can send you some pictures too if you want to share with the audience, or you know, if, you know, they can kind of we can send them back to the site. And I have a bunch of them on, on my webpage on sonofablitch.com. Um, but it, this particular one is very, very dark, um, almost black, and the whole thing except for a little bit of white hair on the on the tips of the tail. And um, so he said. That a lot of times in these areas where he's finding a lot more melanistic deer in uh, the populations, that there's creek beds and they're spending a lot of time there because in this dark coat they're not going to be out in the sun all day, uh, especially in these high heat environments. You know where it can get up 115, you know degrees, um, and, and that's just temperature. You know, yet alone the heat index there at certain spots and times in, in Texas. And uh, he says a lot of times they'll spend uh, a great deal of their day in the creek bed. And there was you know, this one particular deer, we saw it in person, just kind of flashed by us. And then, uh, I, I didn't see it on camera for, uh, five years. Um, and then finally we got a couple pictures on camera, uh, maybe in that fourth year. And, uh, then didn't, no one ever saw it in person until we did. Um, and then my buddy had a camera with him. He took some pictures and then I went and hunted it a couple of days later. Uh, and then we saw a couple other game trail pictures, but as far as, you know, maybe six total game trail cameras and we see all these other bucks and we can identify them and they're coming out to the feeders and this openings and stuff. But I think that it was true that the, the melanistic deer ended up spending a lot of time in the Creek bed It was a seven and a half year old buck. And obviously had, had, you know, survived, um, you know, through many a seasons. Um, but what we, we started to see around that time, uh, younger does, but we would never see the melanistic does with any fawns. You would see a regular white tail. When I say regular, you know, typical looking white tail um, with twins, uh, fawns. One would be a regular looking melan, uh, white tail deer and the other one would be melanistic. But we'd never see any, any melanistic doe with fawns. And so um, I wasn't thinking when I took that buck to keep any samples, uh, tissue samples or anything. Um, I recently, this October... I took a a, a melanistic doe uh, from the property and I ended up saving, uh, you know, some some tissue and some samples there. Uh, And I'm working with, you know, some people that I've been in touch with who study melanism and, you know, they want to learn more. But it's basically... You know, I guess if two regular-looking whitetails have that genetic disposition and that particular whatever it is—the chromosomes or whatever the, the things that are that are embedded—which is people way smarter than I can maybe explain—that um, when they kind of match up, then they'll have a melanistic animal. So I don't know if that melanistic buck bred any regular white deer, and they had them. We're not sure if they're they're uh, you know fertile or not. So that's something that. Um, I'm hoping to maybe be able to contribute to learning more about that uh, and maybe having some people maybe do a capture uh, someday on the property. And I've talked to a few different people, um, some you know people who are, are, are doctorates and, and uh, professors at, at different universities uh, throughout the country, but a couple here in Texas um, who are interested in learning more. So hoping to get down into that. You know, a lot of, you know, white-tailed deer have different color phases or not phases, I guess, the different colorations, you know, uh, mm-hmm. lewistic, uh, you know, albino was not as common, but you know, there's places like in the Seneca reservation up in New York. Uh, they have an area that was a army depot, I guess, at one point in time, I think it's like 10,000 acres total that they had fenced off. There was a lot of white deer in that area. And now I think through the years of, you know, in kind of in inbreeding in that population, in that sense, the majority of them are white. And so that's regionally genetically something that's very big there. I've heard of different, you know, areas that have a lot more piebald, uh, and different color, you know, colorations of deer. Uh, there's a guy, um, Jim Heffelfinger who wrote a article called 50 shades of Brown that kind of talks about the different, uh, colorations of Mm -hmm. deer. That's a really great one. I think I have that on my website too, or at least a link to it. And it kind of goes into detail a little bit more about the genetic portion of that. But yeah, I think a lot of it's the environment um, and just that that kind of genetic disposition of that area um, and kind of maybe it is that creek bed. Maybe it is a lot of those areas that are deep pockets in the woods that uh, they're spending a little bit more time at. Uh, I do see some now that are just there every day at feeders um, and it's a little bit more common, but I think we've had a lot of no pressure zones on the property and there's things that we're doing that have been enhancements where we're just seeing a lot more deer uh freely move and i think um you know with the advent of cellular cameras i'm maybe seeing them when i didn't you know sometimes yeah. some camera wouldn't take them before or whatever so that's something that i find fascinating and you know i'll, I'll continue to share what i learned with everybody throughout that process
0: yeah i mean it's it's fascinating. Uh, it it truly is. I I you know I often think about, um, you know, I mean white-tailed deer. They've been around longer than we have, at least in North America. They've have they've run the gauntlet on some predators. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were dealing predators before uh, predators that supposedly we couldn't we couldn't get past until they went extinct. So I say that because like so like they've obviously adapted. And I don't need to get, I mean, they, they've adapted. I'm the whitetail historian, but like, what are they currently, it's just fascinating for me to like, every now and then I'm thinking about, like, what are they currently uh, evolving right now? That maybe like centuries down the road, they're going to be evolved to where they don't, they're not affected by like auto headlights. I mean, at a certain point, you know, they, they have this thing where everybody knows deer in the headlights, maybe at a certain point they're going to evolve past that. Um, or maybe they're going to start to evolve a past, you know, hunters. I mean, as, I mean, how long have we really been elevated hunting, you know, hunting deer? Uh, whether it's a climber, more exposed, out in Texas, y'all might be in more. I mean, we have a lot of box blinds down here in the southeast. So it's just interesting to different dynamics because, I mean, you've got a lot of deer in this country that are, they're not really evolving for predators they're evolving to like live around us they're in our backyards i mean they're you know people see it when they follow people that hunt suburbs i mean they're they're i don't know what kind of evolve uh evolution that is but they're they're you know they're they're living amongst us almost being hand-fed and then then there's some that you know are wild that are evolving you know with the coyote population that at least here in the southeast deep south there's coyotes everywhere wanting that way when i was a kid so that's awesome. And I'm gonna um um I'm gonna put a link to that article on the um Black Beauty. That that's that was one of my favorites that I've seen. Cause that's we've taken um some bucks in my farm, but they just had like a black face. Uh, I think I mentioned that before. Yeah. And the white ring that would be around their snout, right right in front of their behind their nose was black. And um you know, I don't have enough data, true, like true data, because our property's not that big, but they've all been around our, our spring fed creeks. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, sometimes in the yeah. south, like some of the antler sets that you'll see come out of like real dark swamps, you know, Blackwater, whether it's Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina the swamps where bucks hold up in, where deer hold up in, you know, that their antlers can have a lot more character to them. Maybe they're beaded more. Mm-hmm. They've got more uh, kind of trash, junk, people call them, non-typical points. I- I've never come across, I don't think there's any kind of research on that, but it just, where it seems like our area and where I've hunted, where it's more pine plantations, more upland, traditional terrain, you get this kind of classic, eight, 10 points. You don't get the, and the traditional coloration, but some of that stuff, it's just like what, like what you said, it's what people see. And now, now trail cameras and technology, we're seeing so much more, but that that's awesome. What y'all have seen down there. Um, let's talk about Matt, my ranch. Let's dive into this. Cause you you've touched on it. Um, you've got a company that produces high quality maps, can you tell us a little bit about what you do, what you offer? Yeah, certainly.
1: So I guess kind of just a, a real quick touch into the Genesis. And it was the idea that I wanted to have a map of the property of that ranch in Central Texas. My buddy was a uh, GIS expert, a guy named Colin Williams, who's the other half of my ranch, uh, one of my best friends. And he had a GPS unit at the time. that was probably like a $5,000 unit. It was one of the you know best that could go within think mark something within like a couple feet and I'm sure you can get that on eBay for like 40 cents. Now it's, you know, way old. It was like about 20 years ago that we went out to the property and we started marking different stands or maybe it was a game trail and just to kind of get some things and try to figure out how to put some icons on like Photoshop or whatever. And then eventually uh, we ended up putting out a, a couple printed maps of the property and I was showing some friends and someone was like, man, you should map my ranch. And then I had another friend, you should map my ranch. <laughs> and then, you know, Colin and I looked at each other and said, Hey, well, you know, let's try this out. And so, yeah, I think we're coming up on our 20th year, um, of, of business, you know, we kind of did some for friends, you know, just kind of, you know, just as a gift, uh, you know, before, and then we started kind of, you know, eventually picking this up as a business and, um, it's you know it's not a full- time thing. It's something we just love to do on, the, on on our side, but something we're both very passionate about. And um, we started to create printed aerial maps. Um you know a lot of the types of you know imagery people see from Google Earth and stuff, it's a satellite image. And you know you can print it out, but it may be pixelated and it's not the best quality. Where when you get aerial yeah. imagery, uh, the cameras are much better um and now i think satellite imagery a lot of them is caught up cuz you can have some really crisp data too and there's some companies we we do get some imagery of areas where it may be hard to fly a plane or maybe there's people that aren't doing that as often in that area but uh you know a lot of counties will go and they'll fly um you know a lot of times to see if there's any you know more roofs on the ground for taxable you know purposes um and so there's different organizations there's uh you know across the you know texas we know of you know at least a dozen that are flying and a lot of times we will subscribe to them and get the best imagery so we're getting stuff that's usually six months at the newest and that's kind of industry standard up to maybe a year and a half uh where that's awesome yeah because you look at you know google earth and some of those images are you know four years old you know
0: and i mean like 20 years ago it was like a 20 year old (laughs) photo
1: Oh yeah. It was like black yeah. and white. Right. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> there's no electrical lines, anything, but the imagery that, you know, I've, our family has had some over the years, just these old maps. Mm-hmm. And so we've printed them out for, you know, at least the last, you know, almost 20 years. So we kind of have a chronology of our, our, you know, development of what we've done on the, on the ranches, which is really fun to see historically. But, um, Yeah. So we'll, we'll do printed maps. Um, It kind of just started off on regular photo paper. And then we've evolved. We have three different types of products now uh, that we mainly offer. There's some other ones we can do, but uh, weatherproof is, is probably our most popular. It's kind of like a Tyvek type material. It's water resistant, tear resistant, it's foldable. So it's great to take out in the field. Uh, It has a matte finish. So it looks really, really good on the wall or framed. Um, A lot of people will frame those and, maybe use dry erase markers or, you know, some kind of, you know, glass marker to, to kind of put their points on. But for those who, um, you know, maybe they, they, they want to have that utility, but it's not necessarily a frame thing. We have laminated, it's a scribe laminate where people can use dry erase markers, uh, chalk markers, stickers, um, those, you know, laminated, you know, obviously you can't fold those. Uh, I mean, you could but just be all creasy and wouldn't look right. So those, you know, if you're going to carry them around with, you just have them in a tube to protect them. Um, but you know, most times people put those up in the, in the ranch lodge. Hey, you know, someone's going to go hunt here and you'll kind of draw, you know, where someone saw something or whatever the notes they may have. And then we have a vinyl, which is great for like outdoor use. A lot of people have barns and stuff. They just want to keep them out there on the wall. Um, Those are great because, you know, they're, they're water resistant um, and they hold up real well. They're heavier. So if there's some wind, they're not going to just kind of take off. And, you know, we can put grommets on those and tie them into spots. So, Really, kind of just depends. A lot of people will get like a big map from us and then some smaller field maps, to, you know, put in their backpack or their back pocket, even. I keep the two in a three, two by three foot and my back pocket all folded up. That that weatherproof is so thin that, uh, you know, I barely know it's there when I'm sitting down or, you know, driving around or even in a stand. Um, but we also do some work with Onyx too. So, you know, do, they do digital mapping and, uh, you know, Onyx Hunt. And so we kind of have a partnership where if people, uh, you know, order a custom map from us, you know, we, we kind of do two different things. We have a boundary map, or it's just the boundary of your property with a little legend, you know, compass rows, uh, scale for feet and yards. Uh, but then if somebody wants to have customizable points, maybe they want to show where their deer stands are, or their feeders, or if they're public land, maybe, uh, you know, where different game trails are or good scenic glassing overlooks, uh, you know, whatever it, it may be. You know, again, we do a lot of stuff for, you know, uh, folks in in the fishing community too uh whether it's like fly fishing or you know kind of coastal stuff so whatever someone wants we'll kind of customize it to their usage but they'll get a free onyx membership for a three-month elite um and then they'll go ahead and plug in all the points you know name the stands or whatever the the things that they want to customize will uh you know have on there and then they'll send that to us and we'll kind of import that data over an aerial imagery that'll be static and Kind of, you know, create a draft map for them to look at and make sure we have everything right. You know, all the icons are how everyone wants them or whatever color. You know, in Texas, a lot of times, you know, yellow for corn, green for protein, blue for water, right? <laughs> so it's kind of simple. Yeah. Uh, we'll have our little icon on those for those. And, um, yeah. So that's something that, you know, it's really, we, we've done a, a, a lot of really fun projects with different companies recently, uh, sharing the land, um, with is Doug Duran. He works with Meat Eater. Uh, he, basically brings land users and landowners together uh, to form these collective groups that will kind of benefit the the property maybe someone comes in and they know how to run a tractor um, and then they in turn will you know do some work to maybe go hunt or fish or forage or you know whatever it may be and so we are making the maps for the landowners uh, of the that have come into that program there. Um, and yeah, so that that's been a fun partnership with Doug and sharing the land. And we we did some stuff for the meat eater auction house oddities, gave away a map last year. Uh, we've done some other things. Texas Wildlife Association, we're offering a map. So we we will try to donate, you know, some maps kind of helped out with fundraiser and, and things, too, and kind of help out and kind of, you know, give something back to our community as best we can. Uh, but, you know, it's 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 a fun project that we've it's evolved, you know, can't even think I, thinking about like 20 years, it's kind of just flown by, but um, we're kind of one of the leaders in, in that outdoor space of of creating, you know, printed aerial maps, you know, especially in a day and age where some folks just do nothing but digital. Uh, you know, even the folks that, you know, on X, who I, I interviewed recently, he talks about, he's like, yeah, but nothing beats being able to come back from a hunt or when you go to a hunt and look at a map on a wall and talk about where everyone's yeah. going and stuff too. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like the indoor fireplace, man. It's uh you know, it's uh, you sit around a campfire and tell stories and whatnot, but you're inside and you're being able to or even outside pulling out a map and being able to talk about everything in. It's a really uh it's a magnetic piece to the puzzle out there and uh obviously something that a lot of landowners who get maps from each each year, they're looking at what they're doing progressively, you know, their management, uh whether it's, you know, quality deer management or whatever it may be that they're growing native seeds or you know, even agricultural use, something that they can see the evolution of their property over the years as they've developed it. It's really neat to see in kind of a larger format on a, on, on a map. So yeah, that's kind of a, you know, a little bit of the nuts and bolts there, Map my ranch and, and what we got going there too.
0: Yeah, man, you're George, you're, you're spot on about the, you know, having a, having a tangible map. I, you know, I love One and it's, it's great for, you know um, I use it a lot for real estate purposes uh-huh. it's great you know it, it's kind of good that you know like you're doubting something you're doubting where you are a boundary or something you pull it up or you want another owner or whatever but it's not to me it's not what you just described that's not on that that's not what onyx is yeah. at least for me i mean it's yeah. a great resource and a tool but it's not a map and, and there's, you know, it's two different things. it's two different purposes, but you're right. I mean, nothing beats having that map on a wall, especially if you have anyone coming to hunt your property, um, whether it's, you know, a good friend or someone brand new, like what you were saying, maybe like a mentor type hunt, even though they're not going to be probably, you know, spot stalking, you're going to drop them off. It's just a lot of times people, people want to get a concept because, you know, you, you've had your land and gen- for generations I've had mine for a long time. I know like back of my hand, but you bring yeah. someone up and they've been to your property for a while, but still sometimes people just want to know kind of, well, you know, where exactly are you going to be? Where exactly am I going to be? Where's the house? Where's the meeting place or whatever it is. And, and, and I tell you, I mean, even, even being familiar or if someone knows the property, like quote, like back of their hand, There's just something different about you can memorize a lot of things and you can picture a lot of things in your head. And I like like right now, my property and when I tell a lot of people I work with consulting is just, you know, walk. It sounds so simple. It sounds almost dumb to say, but just to walk your property. Because like right now I'm looking for sheds and I'm walking, I'm just I'm going through areas that I don't want to go through during the hunting season because they're good bedding. I don't want to dis- disrupt game, whatever it is, or I'm walking through areas that maybe we don't hunt and maybe there's just kind of nothing there, so to speak, but walk it cause stuff changes. Sure. I mean, you know, every couple of years, things change, trees grow up this, the, you know, I mean the landscape changes. So, you know, walking the land and having that map to kind of piece things together, especially I mean, there's just so many things like, you don't, you know, having ONX on your phone—it's such a small, such a small area. But when you're talking, when you go going that next level as far as planning a hunt, talking about wind—you know—you've got three or three or four or five hunters, and it's like, hey, you know, Steve, you want to hunt here, but if Bob hunts right here, Bob's scent's blowing to Steve, so yep. you don't need to be hunting there we can't hunt those two stands together because of the wind. There's just so many different things that plays into it. So yeah, I mean, that's having a true map is probably one of the best And must I mean, in the grand scheme, it's so inexpensive compared to a tractor compared to this and that, but (laughs) a map can make a map will allow you to hunt better. If you just look at it, understand what you're looking at, but then, I mean, just even be able to, like you said, for the management side, Saying, well, wait a minute. If I, if I planted this with that, and planted this, burn this, burn that. It's it's definitely something that I mean everyone should have. Yeah. Um, I, I think. And what I like to do, I I like to incorporate, or I like the maps where they incorporate the surrounding properties. Yep. You know, because some people just kind of want their tight boundaries, which is great. But you know, it's it's you know. To, to be able to kind of look down and just kind of see your neighbors, because so much of your neighbor's property dictates what happens on your property. Hundred percent. As far as far as game travel, you know, talking about turkeys and quail, yeah, some, yeah, some quail, but quail use such a small footprint. But deer and turkey, it just, you know, um, I mean, a lot of what we're doing for our property we play off what what the neighbors are doing. I mean, we've got two massive clear cuts on both sides of us that have grown up. The neighbors have let grow up in the thicket. So we're playing off that for a while. We're not really creating as many thickets right now. Those will play off in a little bit and we'll, you know, transfer on. So I, I've got one, one question about the maps and I will tie that into your airhead and your love of artifacts and, what have you noticed out Texas? I'm sure you have um, that like someone can use a map or like terrain features to find artifacts where I am in the Midlands and South Carolina. I've noticed a lot where if any type of high ground that's right adjacent to, we have a lot of Carolina bays, they call it. And what You know, what what the researchers believe is that those were meteors, um, hits, something. I mean, there are oval depressions. They're kind of all over. um, But, you know, the high ground around a Carolina Bay or a creek bottom, you will typically be, if you start finding some flakes, some chips, you'll find all kinds of stuff. And and it's crazy because if you hug those borders, I mean, they're just loaded with them. Are there any kind of terrain features? I mean, when you're finding them in Texas, I know people can find them kind of everywhere, but there's, there's some concentrated areas.
1: Yeah. um, There's like in South Texas, there's a lot more, uh, you know, visible dirt, you know, that's Mm -hmm. out there. And whereas in central Texas, I talked to a guy, he's kind of a, he's kind of a, the, the, one-stop shop of everything historically Texas artifact wise. And he and I were talking and he said, you know, there's more artifacts on your few hundred acres in central Texas than there are in a thousand acres in Southwest Texas. He's like, that area had a lot more uh, just a lot more activity. Um, yeah. It was a lot richer of soil, uh, a lot more water, uh, this a lot more grasses and Forbes and, and it all makes sense. But in and of itself, that makes it harder to find them because there is a lot more grass. There's a lot more development of, you know, types of trees and brush and things too, to where there's just not as much exposed grass. Um, You have to go to certain areas there too. Well, you can look at the topography features um, and be able to see, okay, this is a runoff and, you know, you can see from, you know, an aerial image that it's like, okay, this is some bare dirt over here. It's because it's a lot of water that comes through over there and just erodes over there. Hey, that's a good spot to go to because it's constantly being flushed. You know, and and kind of you know the water is you know going through that area. Not as much thing is growing there, and so you might have a better chance of seeing that. You know, I've never done the. Um, you know, I've never been a part of a dig. But, you know, I know a lot of people that will go to the certain spots that they'll find on on a map or or even just was a walking around kind of boots on the ground thing. And, you know, uh, kind of like what you would maybe think of as like a scenic overlook, if you're being able to see game or maybe back in the day, uh, your enemies or, you know, your friends coming in, yeah. just where you yeah. can you establish these viewing areas too, where there, that was a lot of time spent, a lot of activity spent there. And you'll see a lot of flakes or, you know, fire rings or different stuff like that, too. Um, so that may be kind of dependent, you know, and there's some areas in West Texas, it's so flat, you can watch your dog run away for three days, you know? And so in those areas, <laughs> you're not going to necessarily see uh, as as much of that kind of terrain difference, but if there's an area that, uh, you know, gets a lot of rain and there's not a lot of grass growth, that's where we're going. Yeah. So there's Southwest Texas, again, it's like I said, it's just not as much water and rainfall there, a lot more barren dirt um, and it, it, every. You know, if you're doing any kind of activity on your property, especially if they're, you're ever kind of tilling the soil up or you're doing any kind of planting, you know, each year you might be exposing new things. And that's yeah. amazing how there may be artifacts you're walking over. There may be a hundred in like this one little pasture, but it may be a foot or two feet deep. Um, You know, maybe that was exposed and then buried or maybe eventually it'll be exposed again. And, you know, I, I'll go to areas of creek beds where a lot of water's coming through there, too. And I'll search the bottom of these creek beds when it goes dry and see what's there, or maybe kind of sift through a little bit if, you know, just, if it's just kind of loose, uh, you know, sand and stuff there too, just to see if you find anything. But, you know, sometimes things could be, you know, just buried an inch below you and you just never know. So it's like, you never know where, what you might find. And then a lot of times in the sides of creek beds. I'll mm-hmm. walk those cause there'll be part of an arrowhead or a tool sticking out there. That's been partially exposed. So I always tell people to go check those out, you know, where rain's going to be traveling, making a lot of, uh, you know, grooves and, and things where you just kind of each time you have a good rain, go through, walk, walk through that area and see yeah. what's there, you know, yeah. and see if something's been exposed.
0: Yeah. That's what, I mean, that, that's a rain that that's uh like anybody that has a field or a food plot, that's kind of close by some water after a fresh rain. That's when a lot of them uh, pop up. It's just kind of, it's, it's, I mean, they're all to me very fascinating, but there's just something cool about finding an artifact of of, of any type um, in an area that probably had, that has water now, that probably had water Uh years ago when they were Native Americans were in the landscape and probably game too. I mean, it just, you know, there's something very, very fascinating about that um son of the Blitch, son of a bitch Blitch podcast easy for me to say son of a Blitch podcast let's talk about this because you've had on some uh some pretty big headliner names on there um some pretty home run guests have you had has there has there been anybody on anything stand out that you just not in a bad way, but just someone said said something that just kind of surprised you that just kind of it kind of stands out like, huh? Not in a bad way. I, I can think of one guest myself, but just something that was like, huh, that's just pretty pretty fascinating. Like you wouldn't have thought maybe you got that out of them or they shared it or any does any not that I'm not saying your favorite mm-hmm. interview, but it's just one that just really stands out to you because you've had it on some some pretty cool people on say the least.
1: Yeah. Cheers. Um, yeah, I've been, you know, blessed to be joined by some amazing people, um, who, you know, it's been so many different types of, uh, folks that I've reached out to. I've had conversations with, you know, people like, you know, Jim Shockey, where he really opened up about, you know he was he worked on a, on a book called Call Me Hunter it was his first novel he's written a couple other books that are kind of in the hunting world and some of his adventures obviously he's been doing television shows for decades um and kind of a leader in the outdoor space there uh and and just a wonderful wonderful gentleman and you know i was talking to him and he he had just lost his wife um last year uh, we had we were supposed to do the podcast and then she had passed and so we postponed it a little bit And I was asking him some questions and, you know, I was, didn't know if and how to maybe address that other than maybe, you know, before or after kind of offering my personal condolences. And I talked to him about, you know, I was like, what was it like when you first had your book in your hands? And he's like, that didn't mean much to me, but to have my wife have the very first copy because Simon and Schuster rushed a copy to him so that he could give it to her and he would read it the final copy she got to see it and you know her last weeks of life and he opened up about that and so man just trying to control the waterworks and thinking of like what that must be like for your wife of 40 years to pass oh yeah like you know we're, we're we've had you know some a little bit of communication leading up to it and you know maybe he's a little familiar with who i am i'm obviously familiar with who he is but um, for him to come out and talk about that so openly and willingly was, um, was a special moment for, for me to just to be a part of that facilitation of emotional, vulnerable rawness, because I think it, things like that, when it's like that human connection, man, we've all lost someone, maybe not in that same capacity, but people that we've known, you know, the longer you live, the more people are going to lose. Right. And like, that was just something that was very profound to me that it wasn't about his hunting book necessarily. It was tied into Mm -hmm. that, but it was like, it was those little moments where I got to really have this huge human connection with somebody and then be a springboard to be able to share that and to share his experience and his viewpoint and things that I feel like could be very helpful for others who may be in a similar situation or going through it, or maybe have already gone through it. And so that was a big one. Um, I had another guy who a veteran who talked about, you know, this is an episode that will be coming up soon where he talked about trying to take his own life. And here we are talking about hunting. And then we take a turn into his service. And he talked about being in a rock bottom. And I was like, what was rock bottom for you? And he mm. talked about that. And the, he had never talked about that before publicly. And, but he chose to talk about that on my podcast and there's been a few times where people have come on the podcast to make an announcement where, I mean, let's face it. I'm not, I'm, I don't have this huge, overly successful podcast,
0: but I think- Oh, no, you're, you're cutting yourself short now.
1: Well, it, it's not, you know, it, I, <laughs> I feel like I, I facilitate a good conversation. Yeah, um, yeah, I yeah. feel like that's something that, um, I did surely was not like that at the very beginning. I look at some of the first ones I look back and I'm like, Oh God, someone needs to tell the guy to run these, you know, like, I don't listen
0: to, uh, <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't even listen to them I just put them up.
1: <laughs> it's a wise thing. You know, when yeah. I'm editing, I, I I'm in my head too much, yeah. but then I need to listen to the final product sometimes just to kind of remind myself. Cause when you're editing and you're in your, oh man, I remember someone coughed there. I got to go take that out. It's a different level of listening. And, you know, when we're engaged, like we are now, we're not thinking about the final product. We're just in this moment. And, uh, you know, you just never know what could be shared. There's been some wonderful, you know, people that have been on that have really opened up or, you know, talked about a lot of their different experience. I've talked to some musicians who, um, that, that that's been a lot of fun the band princess goes um you know uh, the drummer kj Saku played the pendulum those guys have kind of talked about their musical stuff and uh had john norris on recently uh who he's a uh, a retired game warden and he's a musician so we talked about that so it's kind of fun to kind of there's these little pockets of different people oh, yeah. who you know jesse griffiths who is uh, you know another one too he's a, a wild game chef who's just one of the best and, uh, he has like a musical background. So it's like, we, there's little times it's fun to kind of jump outside of maybe the lane of what we're talking about, whether it's cooking or wild game or management and stuff, and just kind of get these little fun tidbits of people and kind of like, oh yeah, they're, they're interested in this too. This is something you might not know about, you know? And, um, I think one of the things that I really like too, that I think I started about it maybe a year into it was asking people about their legacy and it's mm-hmm. re- really been interesting to hear. Yeah everybody's approach to what they think about their personal legacy. And some people don't, they're like, I don't think about that. Um, And it, you know, may, maybe yeah. it's not in their forefront, but I still think like everything we do, especially in this digital world and us recording these things, this is going to be here that our, our kids, grandkids can listen to these as long as, you know, YouTube exists or digital files are there. Um, What we put down can be seen by people who may be related to us, but we never even get to meet. And that's a fun thing to kind of leave those little um, you know, breadcrumbs of who people are. And, you know, when I used to work with these indigenous elders around the world, interviewing them and putting together their life stories and their messages, it was the idea of like, we're preserving this for seven generations down the line. And I feel like in the podcast, in the sense, there's an element of that same kind of approach that I took then of just wanting to be a conduit to people's stories that, um, I feel, uh, blessed and, um, just honored to when people come in and they talk about those things in their own life or whatever projects they're doing that we can kind of keep around for other people to listen to for, you know, it's like every day, you know, your podcast, my podcast, there's more listeners that are listening to particular episodes and then you get to hear the feedback from that. And it's like, Oh man, that was really cool. It's like, you kind of put out a, an album or a a book if you will, because that's things I've worked on before and you know, different elements of, you know, things I've produced it just feels like another little, you know, thing like that. It's a nugget of something you can keep with each conversation and uh, it'll be there for people to learn about and enjoy and hopefully be entertained and educated by. And that's something that I just find uh, it's, it's thrilling, man. It's, I, I just love kind of being a part of that and not necessarily putting like a spotlight on me and what I'm doing, but it's having a vehicle to push other people's, uh, talents out there into the world or, or, you know, their expertise or, or their artwork or whatever it is. I find someone who I think is interesting. I've reached out to them, and more times than not, they're saying, yeah, I'll join you. So that's been, I think as the resume builds that of different, you know, people coming on, it opens up other doors. So people who I thought, ah, this person never respond to me. And then, you know, it's, there's a few people that are like some of these leaders in the industry. They're like, yeah, I'd love to come on. I'm like, wow, what an honor. And so, you know, just do due diligence to make sure I'm researching and asking good questions as best I can, and kind of let them have their time, you know.
0: That's right. Yeah, I I really enjoyed your podcast and and your approach to it because it's um like what you just described. It's you know much more of a conversation and you know a true interview. And I try to do I, I try to do similar type stuff. I I you know some podcast or just some interviews in general when you're two people are talking, whether format, podcast, YouTube, TV, or whatever, sometimes it's just kind of like, it's almost like if you listen to whatever show, it's like the same kind of questions. It's like, you know, it was a hunting related content. It's, you know, how do you, you know, big bucks, big bucks and trail cameras and scrapes and, you know, just kind of over and over and repetitive. But, you know, a lot of times people have, you know, like people say like there's a story a lot of times somewhere and some of these guests that, you know, if they're doing one podcast, they probably have done some others. And every now and then there's, you know, we can, someone can get someone that had not really done many, but yeah, you know, they can kind of not get on circuit, but you know, this is the same type general questions. And I like to yeah. sometimes kind of ask, um, you know, some different things where it's, it's kind of more um, you know, what they just trying to get them to talk, you know, about the, you know, ideas and not so much like when I will talk like a biologist, for instance, like a researcher, sometimes they don't want to do it, but, you know, like talking about the melanistic traits, it's like, you know, I get there's you know, sometimes researchers, they don't want to like give out hypotheses or ideas, but it's like, if we know these facts, let's relate this. And so what do you really think is happening? You know, what do what you really, and, but that, that's awesome, man. Yeah. That interview with Jim Shockey was uh, amazing. And uh, that's, you, you've covered, covered some awesome ground. He's, he's definitely uh, a cornerstone in hunting media and, and he's one of the good ones too. I um, mean, he, oh, yeah. he's, he's one of the true authentic uh, good ones. And yeah, that, that was um, very sad going, you know, just uh, seeing Jim and, uh, their daughter Eva just through social media. I don't know them obviously, but you know, sometimes we follow people online. You feel like you've kind of, you're no more than, than the average person. And yeah, it's definitely out there, especially when someone's in the general public like that, you know, and, and, and people know, you know, who you are and the wife and everything. So that's awesome. Um, Anything on tap, any kind of projects you can, that you can share as, as we wrap this up for 2024? Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: um, a few different things, uh, one, one of which I always say, I mentioned that I took that melanistic dough. So I'm going to have a follow-up article, um, where I'm going to be talking about that and kind of, in you know, just to give a quick reference to like the first one I wrote black beauty, it talked about a lot of the work that we had done and the clearing of this acreage and how then I started to see this animal in this area that we had done all this work, um, on the property to, to enhance. And then now this doe that I shot was in an area that we had just cleared and done a bunch of work. And so it was kind of like, um, it, it just, it's, it was a, a really wonderful, uh, experience, To be able to see it in a sense of reward, I guess, of like all the hard work to being able to see that we're keeping these animals healthy for multiple years. We're seeing them on the property year round. We've created this habitat. A lot of the areas around us have been, um, you know, a lot of farmland and stuff, too. And, you know, as the urban areas continue to, you know, expand. Uh, I think we're kind of getting a little bit more of the backwards pressure, kind of like we kind of create a vacuum where they're like the deer spending a lot more time on a property. And so um, that's been something that's like, as more improvements, being able to have experiences and stories and things like that that I can share has been phenomenal. So it'll be an article about just not just, you know, Hey, I saw this deer and I shot it, but like what led up to (laughs) that particular lane that, you know, and what we were doing and what we planted. And uh, so working on that, uh, once the, Um, the, I got a shoulder mount done on that one. So that should be back in April. And so I'll be taking some, you know, pictures of those and with the other, uh, the, the buck and kind of putting something that out. And, you know, I did some filming of that hunt too. So I'll have some things that I'll release then. Um, and let's see, um, i got some really cool, you know, guests coming up. I'll be interviewing Jack Carr, um, when he, his new book comes out, the Terminalist series book, he's got a new one coming out, um, Red Sky Morning. Um, so, and then he's got another, uh, historical book coming out in october so hopefully i can kind of get him on that one as well too and kind of interview him uh made some friends with with the guys from simon and schuster when i had jim on uh he had some really good feedback after our our podcast and so they said you know let us know if you want to have anybody in the queue so i might be reaching out and and kind of going outside that i'd probably say like 70 to 80 percent of my guests are kind of in that wildlife outdoor Mm -hmm. space or someone who runs a company or has created something or maybe they're you know a host themselves, but I'm kind of moving out into other avenues too. So um that'll be kind of an interesting thing to see where that progresses. Um and some more musicians that'll be coming up. So there's there's a lot of folks that I have in the Cube who we haven't recorded yet. So I don't really throw their names out there. As kind of you and I talked about that until it's done, it's not done, right? You know and That's it's right. like um but there's a, a lot yeah. of leaders in the industry. Uh Maddie Nelson over at Seekins Precision having him on, um, I invited Renella out and, uh, to talk about his new, uh, book that's coming out. It's, um, let's see, it's the, it's the meat eater fish and game cookbook, but it's like the outdoor cookbook, like a, the outdoor fire and different things too. So hopefully he'll, he'll be joining me. Um, and that, you know, I can have that. That's been someone I've had some cool connections with, uh, over the years. So would like to have him on the podcast and, you know, there's a bunch of other guests that are lined up. that are just phenomenal people, um, that I, I and I'm hoping, you know, I can, bring back some of the other guests I've had on before, you know, I just recently had Jesse Griffiths on uh, for the second time. And, you know, Doug Dern's another one I want to have come on and talk more about what he's got going on. So there's, there's a lot of people that, you know, I've been in contact with that. I'm just, I'm stoked to have that. And then I'll be doing a lot of filming uh, a little bit more on the ranch and kind of what we're doing with, as far as, you know, management systems there and kind of yeah. um, doing even it's a little short video format uh, stuff, mm-hmm. you know, two, three minutes about, you know, some tips and tricks or things we've learned or, other oddball projects we might have done or, or whatever it is and uh things we can kind of point out uh getting more into the foraging style of things too and kind of showing hey this is what's growing nice. here at this time and so uh and a lot of wild game cooking that my buddy uh matthew mitchell and i uh, we're, we both have the same birthday so we call ourselves mm-hmm. birthday twins bdt so it's bdt cooks so we're going to be using a lot of these recipes that we're finding in like jesse griffiths just put out the turkey book Uh, it'll be shipped next month and so we're going to be taking you know different dishes and from you know filming the wild turkey hunts that we do here in april and then you know here's us you know actually cooking it based on this recipe uh, that we learned so it won't be our recipe but it'll be a lot of these wild game chefs we work with and kind of featuring that side of things so kind of cradle to grave on those things you know but or more from field to table (laughs) so Hmm. that's another project that's kind of slowly ongoing when we can have time to work on it so yeah that's that's kind of some things there too and there's a few more stuff that you know i'll I'll be announcing later on in the year that's coming up that's pretty exciting but for the most part that's that and then trying to find some time to write that uh, bob lemons book man
0: (laughs) yeah yeah you rather find some time to hunt at some point that too that too (laughs) Well, George, this has been a lot of fun. Um, like to wrap this up with uh, three questions I like to ask uh, all my guests. Mm-hmm. Um, first question is: um, if you could, ne- if you could give the audience um, a publication or a book that you would recommend, um, someone you know an outdoor hunting-related book. I know you got a lot behind you, so don't feel like you got to take yeah, favorites. Turn
1: around and look. Um, you know, as far as uh cookbooks, um, anything Jesse Griffiths has put out, the Turkey Book, the Hog Book, Field, are some of my favorites. Um, I dove into Olympia Provisions, which is one of the leading uh, charcuterie makers mm-hmm. in the country. Um, I'm going to have Elias Cairo on at some point in time to talk about that more in depth. That book is absolutely fascinating. I think there's one called Old Pro. It's like the Old Pro Turkey Hunter. It's like Gene Mundal, I think is his name. Um yeah. there's that was one that I, I just dove into. I'm probably butchering the name there, but um that's been a great one. Um the the Buffalo book that that Steve Ronella did, um American Buffalo, uh is phenomenal. Um, um I'm trying to think of just some other ones there. I mean, there's been I'm diving through at least two books a week right now um and i've done a lot about texas history um i'd probably say the one of the more powerful ones i've read recently is the empire of the is it the empire of the summer moon like it's the story of the comanches and their uh you know their kind of history and timeline and a lot of overlaps mm. in texas empire of the summer moon um that is by far one of the most amazing books i've read in years um historical uh you know account of of Just a lot of development of <laughs> really of North American our yeah. our kind of our movement westward. So that's uh, that's cool. one that I, I definitely suggest.
0: Nice, that's some good good suggestions. All right, second question is, what is your just just a good solid favorite wild game dish? Doesn't have to be um, anything elaborate. Could be simple. Could be complex. But you know you you've, you've been traveling you come home and you've got a wild, I mean, excuse me, you've got a freezer full of wild game meat. Um, What are you going to cook? What's just a go-to?
1: I'm going to grab some backstraps from a deer and um, more often than not, because it is loved by everyone in the household, mm-hmm. I'll be making some backstrap nuggets, kind of like chicken fried style, um, with some nice, you know, really good, mashed potatoes and some green beans and you know some good biscuits and some gravy over all that uh but that's that's kind of been a, a staple and then i'm also doing a lot with uh it's a smothered chop recipe mm-hmm. um from the field cookbook by jesse griffiths that's like the hog uh my, that's kind of the go-to and that's the one i love cooking for people because everyone seems to absolutely love it and uh that's just a winner um from any type of size uh, hog that you get even up 200 pound boars uh that just tastes so delicious so those are those are probably two that I cook the most.
0: When you fry the fry the backstrap, what what do you what's your batter? Um, and then what how exactly are you frying it?
1: So I've been using grapeseed oil recently, but okay. I'm kind of looking into some other oils. Um, I just cooked with lard for the first time. Uh when I was doing some uh it was doing fried turkey, a uh, recipe from the turkey book. And that ended up being the best uh one of the best wild game dishes I've ever had was the fried turkey uh, recipe. And that's the one Jesse says he'd have uh, on his death day or on his <laughs> birthday. And uh, they, it was phenomenal. Um, so that was new cooking with lard. But um, a lot of times I'll take some flour um, and, you know, some like Japanese breadcrumbs or Italian breadcrumbs and things, mix that in yeah. there. Um, as well as some different types of seasoning. If there's people that I'm gonna be cooking it for that kind of stand a little bit more heat, I like some spice. You know, mm-hmm. I, think I was talking about growing, you know, being raised in Texas, you know, having hot sauces. I basically used a jalapeno as a, a pacifier growing up, so I'm used to the heat, and that's something I'll put in some, you know, maybe magic dust or whatever types of different spices or kind of southern style, uh, you know, Cajun seasonings in there, um, and that's that's pretty much what uh, I'll use. So I'll just kind of you know bread it in that and and, and do that. But yeah. Um, getting into also doing a lot more of, uh, you know, brining, uh, before I'm cooking some things, that's something that was new to me in the last few years of, uh, brining hogs, um, or even, you know, turkeys. So that's something that I've found has been absolutely a hundred percent beneficial in everything I'm doing. It's nice. something that I had not done before, which I'm excited to see the effects of now because it seems to have a much tastier end game at the Yeah. <laughs> at the end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It certainly should. Talking about the hot sauce in Texas. When I was out there hunting, um, that place had uh, as like Texas Champagne hot sauce, something like that. That that's not the the that's not the brand. I need to. I, I don't see it locally. That stuff was awesome. Nice. I love that. I love that. Um, all right. Last question is conservation. What's something you're out in Texas? I don't talk to. I don't get many people on the podcast out from texas what's what's a real conservation issue that should be on people's mind um that you see out in texas i mean you know a lot of people know about and ask this question because you know this is a southern-based podcast and um i know i say it all the time but you know so much of conservation and the outdoor space a lot of it gets it's it's drifted out west there's so much of it just kind of like western stuff and talking about deer you know for instance i mean people we see deer everywhere there's deer in walmart park and lots deer everywhere but deer have a lot of issues and we have a lot of issues with deer conservation related with the human interaction i had one guest talking about red snapper and redfish because you know each state on the coast I know y'all Texas has it but it's weird like up up the east coast like states will have just various laws game laws about you know snapper and redfish but what what's a real conservation issue that you see in Texas that you feel pretty strongly that really should be on someone's kind of forefront that they should know about
1: you know I think the thing that I personally see the most uh, a lot of times is you know the idea of um kind of the invasive uh you know feral hog and yeah. how um how often we're seeing them how they're pushing you know deer or eating some of the you know what would normally be there for the native species and um that's something that I try to tend to focus on of what can I do to best benefit the native species you know um there's people who won't hunt hogs um if they'll see them come through I don't want to shoot a hog cuz the the deer won't come out you know and it's like you can do that. You can shoot them in. That's mm-hmm. probably better for you. It'll probably end up helping you overall. Market um, practice. Yes. It's target practice too. And it's really delicious. Some people, yeah. you know, they don't believe that they're tasty and they are. And, um, it's a great, you know, food resource there too. But, you know, I think, um, you know, as, as far as, you know, different kind of in Texas, we have so much private land, right? Like, when mm-hmm. I when I've heard about like public land hunting, it's like there are I think a million acres in Texas or whatever the number is that you can go public land hunting. Um, it's challenging in and of itself there too, but because there's so much private land, and I think I think that it really comes into the mindset of the people who are owning it, or maybe that are running it, and maybe there's people who are on there for like hunting leases. Um, you know, a lot of people use agriculture here in Texas. There's a lot of different, you know, I mean, we, we used to run cattle on our place before, until we didn't, and then it became a wildlife management, uh, you know, focus. Um, and I think as you're seeing a lot of the incentives for landowners to be able to get the same tax benefits as if you're running agriculture and like a reduced, you know, a tax load at the end of the year. Um, and there's a lot of different, I think the, just like this situational awareness, like using these resources, these NRCS, the the USDA, there's different programs, CRP, that are out there for uh, private landowners here in Texas that they can be able to do things that would benefit the wildlife and maybe even have some of it paid for or having Mm -hmm. a reduction of fees, I mean, or maybe meeting you halfway Um, and the things you can do to develop the land to be able to best benefit the native uh, critters out here. Um, and just develop better, you know, not only just critters, just like, you know, the, the forbs, the trees, you know, it's the the, the plants, the, the grasses. Uh, I think that there is a lot of awareness that uh, is it's becoming more prevalent. But I think that's something that it, it's kind of a conservational issue in my mind that uh, just to try to educate people on what they can do in having private lands to be able to utilize some of these incentives. Um, you know, like I said, that can, you know, it'll help them. In their habitat but it can also help them financially as well too to be able to tackle some of these things it may be kind of a daunting task of oh I'm gonna bulldoze and you know root plow 30 acres oh my gosh that sounds like a lot and it could be expensive <laughs> but when you're getting money back because you're ultimately helping uh, the wildlife flourish in that area and if people are doing that all around then you're seeing a collective private grouping of that type of development across the state board um, and you know, just being, you know, mindful that if things like, you know, CWD come into play of that you're you're doing things that, that in, you know, we're not seeing it as much here, but there are some little pockets in Texas um, and just being mindful of that and, you know, different practices to where if that's coming in the area, maybe baiting needs to be thought about a little bit more as opposed to just some of the native things you can grow and plant. So um, I think it, you know, kind of evolves each year, but yeah, those are, I don't know if that... For, fully answers your, your question there too. But those are some things that I, I kind of think about and that kind of thing. And, you know, wanting to keep recruitment going on and making sure that we're passing this legacy lifestyle on to other people um, and making sure that we're educating people and teaching them and um, giving them the resources, which I think are, a lot of them are out there for people to become conservation minded and being able to keep this, uh, like I said, this legacy lifestyle around for future generations. So I think that's an important key uh, and, you know, bring someone with you when you're hunting or, or make sure you're passing on the knowledge, share uh, the wild game uh, pictures of showing yourself, you know, doing these things that you're enjoying uh, the bounty of, of your time out in the woods and that, you know, sharing those meals with friends too. And maybe you're going to, you know, unlock that uh, interest in someone else down the line and, you know, kind of help continue this uh, lifestyle that, that we, you and I, and, and many of our listeners hold so dear.
0: Yeah, I like that. I, I do because it's, you know, um it it I think a lot of people now understand about wildlife management. I mean, we've I mean, shoot, we're, you know, about a hundred years or so from the um introduction of like game of like true game laws, you know, hunting seasons bag limits all that you know back coming out of the meat market days when a lot of these species were almost extinct so um and and now it's you know we've had like a second wave had a second wave of like you know deer issues when you know qdm kind of came about now we've got a a wave of turkeys you know mostly the eastern the eastern turkey that um i mean i kind of feel like i posed this idea to biologists, biologist but i kind of feel like the, the turkey just can't they can't evolve. Deer can evolve pretty quickly, but the turkey just the turkey can't evolve faster than a landscape's changing because of yeah. how they're mostly like over here on the on the east coast, these eastern birds, you know, how they nest and everything and the in the in the brood rearing cover, they just can't evolve quick enough. But, anyways, so most people, or at least most hunters, Now kind of understand different wildlife conservation issues, quail, deer, turkey, fish, whatever else, pigs, you know, talk about carrying capacity, what we're talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, they have too many pigs, they're going to take away. If you have too many pigs, it's going to affect your turkey and quail for sure. Oh, yeah. but. Now we're kind of seeing a wave where it's like people are starting to kind of understand the habitat management, like you know chemicals, that type of stuff. And I think that's what you were kind of what you were talking about—that it's not, you know, because like we were—I I say we, but in a lot of this country, we were you know maximizing profit off land, whether it was cattle or like here in the deep south where I am, it's pine trees. Mm-hmm. You know, pine trees grow. You know, pine trees were the highest and best use for a lot of the soil. As opposed to like the Midwest. The Midwest, the highest best use of crops. And that's why there's very little trees and more crops. Well, you know, if you maximize pine production, maximize it wall to wall on your land, it's not maximizing you know, wildlife at all. So people are kind of coming being more educated about, you know, not like being holistic, but just saying there's a balance. You know, you can't all you can't all have. You know late succession pine trees you've got to have early successional veget, you know natives for this and that so it's you know it's and talking about private land i mean it, it reminds me of that quote from you know aldo leopold i'm going to butcher it but you know the something like you know the private landowner or the you know reaping the wards of conservation is comes from the private land i know i'm paraphrasing that really bad yeah. but it, it, it you know it's it's unfortunate We've got some great public lands in this country, but the manpower to truly, you know, manage all these public lands isn't there. And then the public concept, I mean, talking about all these public lands, not necessarily in Texas, but they don't, people don't want to cut trees. You know, they don't understand that like, you know, all these forest fires we're seeing out in the West in California, a lot of that could be a lot, could be. It, it, it could help if you did some land management. You know, mm-hmm. you cut trees, you you burn. So it's. Uh... Well, George, this this has been a lot of fun, man. Where can people find you?
1: So uh, my main website is of B-L-I-T-C-H. Um b l i t c h, and then I kind of you can kind of jump off from there. I have that's kind of the the the, the one stop shop, and then you kind of get to the publishing stuff or or the maps. Uh, there's also mapmyranch dot com um you can follow me on Instagram at the son of a blitch um that's make sure you put the the there um and then um on Facebook uh you know I kind of cross post there I'm not really as as active on that other than kind of putting some stuff out there um and then yeah the son of a blitch podcast just type in son of a blitch wherever you listen to podcasts um i think the YouTube channel is at son of a blitch as well um so you can kind of follow along there i always usually do a video for those who kind of want to see people I'm interviewing and whatnot. And then, uh, you know, I'm I'm on all the podcast channels as well. And so those are, you know, those are kind of the the main spots and any kind of things that I'm announcing, I'll usually do it on my website or or through Instagram. So those are kind of the best places to kind of see uh, what's what's coming next.
0: Awesome. Well, George, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate your time and your insight. Um, I've had a lot of fun here talking about your rich history in Texas and all everything you've got going on. You've got a lot. A lot of, a lot of good stuff. When are you going to fry something in bear grease? I see man, that T you, I see yeah, that T-shirt over there. Yeah.
1: You know, um, that's, that's coming soon. I I need to get some bear grease. I've never hunted bear. So I don't know, maybe I need to call up, a uh, you know, Clay or, or one of those fellows over there and be like, Hey man, you guys got some extra over there you send. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it hadn't happened yet, but it will, it will mark my words.
0: I, I had a guy on, uh, Dr. Chris Jenkins, um, He's a snake biologist, really fascinating guy. He's got his own snake podcast. Uh, it's really fascinating, but he does a lot of bear hunting, Georgia, you know, most like Georgia and the deep South parts of South Carolina, maybe North Carolina, but he's, he's talking about the bear meat and he saves that grease and he just cooks with it year round. Uh, yeah. It's fascinating. I, I know some people that will fool with um like uh deer tallow, like they'll, they'll take, we'll they'll take that hard, whitetail fat and make soap out of it and different things and it's like man i i'm saving the hide i'm making a rug out of the hide i'm i'm, I'm saving the shanks it's amazing how many people don't don't save the shanks let's oh, look at them that's some good like, eating I, yeah when i i was at a deer conference about two weeks ago and shanks came up amazing the people i was i was with and they didn't say the shanks and i was i, I was i was making i was making them feel bad that they good. Yeah. are, are wasting it. good me it's like come on man you're a dear person yeah. <laughs> so yeah if you ever get some bear grease uh maybe get a little test tube or something send it my way if that's there the, you go see well George, this has been a lot of fun i appreciate it thanks to everybody for listening and um i'll see y'all next week
1: oh thanks man appreciate it Pick have a good one, one. cheers